From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence, powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, the national conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, November 1st through Friday, November 5th, 2021. It was a week marked by Biden Build Back Better budget banter, pandemic poop, school board bashing, critical race theory, climate change, plus a bunch of significant city and state elections. And that's just for starters. We're about to embark upon a bold hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view will be tested. We've got some real interesting folks waiting in the wings to tickle your brain with notions, potions, and emotions. Try not to get angry. Just listen with an intelligent level of educated skepticism. We'll hear from Jim Bohannon on the election, Brian Kilmeade on race relations, and by popular demand after last week's program, we'll have another segment from my podcast conversation with the mild-mannered conservative mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, Glenn Jacobs, who in another life was and occasionally might still be the seven-foot mass demon from hell who more than once wore the World Heavyweight Championship belt in the WWE under the pseudonym Kane. Welcome to the power-packed one-hour radio show featuring opinionated yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices sharing their observations as well as the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do their daily dance of affirmation. In a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Rap. Heard coast to coast and around the world on great radio stations in the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media and played out in the theater of your mind. Information's gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Fasten your C-Crane CC earbuds. Speaking of which, this installment of the Michael Harrison Rap is sponsored in part by C. Crane, makers and distributors of great radios. Visit their website at ccrane.com or give them a call at 800-522-8863. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10, foreign affairs. The focus of foreign affairs this week was again U.S.-China relations, although we did have an oil tank incident with Iran in the Sea of Oman. By the way, Thursday, November 4 marked the 42nd anniversary of the Iranian takeover of the American embassy in Tehran, a crisis that lasted 444 days and gave birth to the news show Nightline. On the China front, tensions continue to grow in the face of new developments by our communist adversary in the field of missile development and deployment capabilities, not to mention lingering questions about COVID-19's origin and spread. At number nine, climate change. The COP26 Climate Summit 
Summit took place this week in Glasgow, Scotland, with the mixed reviews as to its productiveness. COP stands for Conference of the Parties. And yes, climate change superstar Greta Thunberg was in attendance. At number eight, abortion. The Texas abortion law and the courts continue to create a big buzz in the national conversation. It's become increasingly complicated with the idea of a bounty being placed on the heads of those who assist in abortions on any level being debated. You can be sure this ain't a done deal. At number seven, immigration reform. The focus of immigration reform has been the intensifying crisis along the southern border, which, according to all reports, is getting worse by the day. Conservative news talk radio remains the only major platform in which this problem is being discussed on a level that has any chance of moving the needle. At number six, a three-way tie between the January 6th investigation, Trump's relationship with the GOP, and voting legislation. The committee's leaders promised this week a whole slew of subpoenas will be forthcoming. As they fight against the clock to outrace Trump's legal efforts to stonewall the procedure and the looming 2022 election, which could tilt control of Congress back to the GOP, which could mean the end of the entire investigation. At number five, a four-way tie between crime, violence, air rage, and the national mood. Numerous studies indicate, as well as first-hand anecdotal evidence, that people are suffering from COVID fatigue and are growing increasingly fed up with the soaring rate of street crime in the cities. And people are increasingly behaving like they're fed up with each other, as indicated by the deterioration of civil behavior on airplanes, on the roads, and in public places such as stores and restaurants. At number four, a four-way tie between the Biden budget, inflation, labor shortage, and the supply chain. The week ended with the House planning to vote on both President Joe Biden's sweeping social safety net plan and the bipartisan infrastructure bill on Friday. With Democrat Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema remaining thorns in the president's side right down to the wire, although they might be doing their party a favor in the long run by bringing it more in line with the national mood and out of the seeming influence of left-wingers such as Bernie Sanders and AOC. At number three, COVID-19 vaccines, masks, and mandates. The debate goes on and medical second opinions abound. With the focal point of heated contention being the vaccine mandates. At number two, a tie between heated school board politics and race relations. Yes, the hottest political strife in America is taking place on the school board level with insults, threats, and screaming becoming the uncomfortable norm. It's all part of the growing movement toward what is being described as parental rights, which also includes a huge backlash against so-called critical race theory. And at number one this week, the Tuesday election. In general, it wasn't good for the Democrats and an indication the party faces gathering storm clouds on the horizon as the crucial midterm election of 2022 draws nearer. Then again, a year in today's politics, though it'll seem to pass quickly, can create an entirely new environment and set of circumstances that could very well render the issues of the moment basically forgotten. Welcome to the age of brain fog and the short attention span. And before I forget, one more thing. Welcome to the age of brain fog and the short attention span. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. As mentioned earlier, the election this past Tuesday was the most talked about topic of the week in the American talk media. Joining us now is one of the most important nationally syndicated radio talk show hosts year after year on the Talkers Heavy 100, Jim Bohannon. Well, we've uh, certainly been covering it uh, leading up to the uh, October, uh, pardon me, the November uh, uh, election of 2021, and uh, that as a 
potential harbinger of what's going to happen a year from now. Of course, uh, different states, different people, different personalities, some different localized issues. But there is an overall feeling, I think, on a lot of people that the left wing of the Democratic Party has pushed just a little too far, too fast. In fact, that was the very advice they got a few months ago from Barack Obama, that they were pushing too hard. And uh, I think the old axiom has proven correct that the... uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party has never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And they turned off a lot of people. I think that's exactly what we saw. Now, people's memories can be short. So, next year, will they remember the Afghanistan withdrawal? I don't know. I would imagine they'll have more constant reminders of the southern border, of crime in the streets, and so on. But uh, uh, we'll have to wait and see how much of a harbinger uh, this uh, past Tuesday was. Do you think more was made of the uh, Virginia election than uh, it warrants in terms of uh, what it foretells in terms of uh, Trump and uh, 2024, et cetera? Well, no, I don't think too much was made at all. In fact, I think that the, uh, the Terry McAuliffe strategy of uh, when in doubt, uh, wave uh, Trump in front of the crowd uh, emphatically uh, did not work. And uh, I think that that's something the Democrats are going to need to pay attention to. I think they have uh, all along paid more attention to the progressive wing of the party than was warranted. Now, I'm assuming that I'm talking about politicians who want to win. If you're a true blue, or in this case, I guess, a <laughs> deep blue believer, then it doesn't matter if you win or lose as long as you trumpet the cause. But if you were like most politicians and you wish to win, then you might think twice about embracing every single word that comes out of AOC's mouth or or Bernie Sanders' mouth. Uh, The simple fact is that there probably aren't more than three dozen House seats in the country that that wing could actually carry. They've been vastly emphasized, and I think the Nancy Pelosi's and Chuck Schumer's of the world have paid too much attention. I think that now you will probably see more emphasis to find people like the the governor-elect, Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, uh, more people like... Uh, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, two Democratic senators who have been uh, sort of a, a burr under the saddle of the, uh, the left wing of the Democratic Party. I think that uh, for those who are interested in winning, that uh, they'll pay more attention to those folks. Do you think that Biden has been under undue criticism, or do you think that uh, he's created these problems for himself? I have to say I think he's created the problems. He started out... He was bragging between the election and the inauguration. I beat the socialists, meaning Bernie Sanders. I think Bernie Sanders must wake up these days, look around, and say this doesn't look like the Lincoln bedroom, but it certainly, if I read the headlines, it reads like I was elected. Uh, that that uh, inaugural address, I thought, was a disaster. Uh, he built it as healing and unity, and, and uh, from that point forward, it has all been pure partisanship. And, and that's his perfect right to be, but I think he set himself up for failure. If you're going to be a hard partisan, then don't set us up to believe you're going to be healing and unifying. And that's what he did. It's like the guy who wrote the speech had never met the rest of the administration. So, yes, and of course that doesn't even get into the cognitive difficulties. And uh, my mother died with dementia, and unfortunately, uh, when you see Biden misspeak and uh, uh, the like, I, I think it uh, it shows some of the early signs of that. It's, it's unfortunate, not something to to make fun of, but uh, I think it's there. I think it's real. Hmm. Well, maybe maybe he will um, um, take advice from uh, you know strategists around him and modify his behavior going forward. I think you've sort of 
you sort of hinted at that in terms of how uh, he and uh, more centrist members of the Democratic Party will deal with the uh, the far left members who have been getting all the press and getting so much attention. You think that's possible? Well, I think that the Schumers and the Pelosi's of the world will, uh, because they're they're pragmatists and they do want to win. Uh, one of the hallmarks of Joe Biden over the years has been that once he sets his mind to something, that's it. Discussion over. And I think that happened in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, that he had picked a date, August the 31st, that was going to be the date. And I want to hear all this stuff about Bagram Air Base and all the rest of the, the problems that you see were leaving. And I think that's a problem. I think that that would help him if he did that. But I, And I think, again, the Schumers and the Pelosi's would be uh, willing to. But I think that Joe Biden has a tendency to uh, draw a line and say, okay, that's my view, and I've, I'm through taking input. So unless he changes and uh, he sort of passed the formative years, then I don't think that that's likely. Mm. As, um, as Terry McAuliffe tried to make it an issue about um, Trumpism, uh, whereby his opponent, who was ultimately successful, made it about local issues, um, what role do you think Trump is going to play uh, in terms of internal GOP politics going forward to um, 22 and then ultimately to 24? Boy, that's a really big question. That's the biggest question, I think, in the country right now. Uh, I, first of all, in the beginning, I didn't think that he would run again. I thought that he had had his fill of it. He'd uh, made his mark. He had run. He had won. He'd done things his way. I didn't think he would uh, want the grief, but uh, increasingly he sounds like he's going to run. If he runs, I think he will win uh, enough primaries to be renominated. If he ran against this ticket today, he or almost any other competent Republican would win, I think, fairly decisively. Though I don't know. I mean, the, the thing that the Republican Party has got to keep in mind is that uh, the dominant force within the party right now is the Trumpers. But they're not enough to win a general election. Without other Republicans, they cannot win a general election. And uh, that's what happened in 2020. A lot of people in 2016... Uh, we're tired of the way things had been going. They thought, well, I'll take a chance on this guy with the big mouth. And uh, a lot of them didn't wind up liking uh, what they saw. And so they abandoned him, particularly in the suburbs, in 2020. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump has not gotten that message. He can abide, cannot abide the thought of losing. So as a result, he has harped on this notion of the, of the fraud, of which there was undoubtedly some, but there's never been proven there was enough to have defeated him. He harped on that throughout the uh, the two runoff Senate races in Georgia, and I think probably personally uh, destroyed the two Republicans' chances of winning. I think he gave the majority of the Senate to the uh, the Democratic Party. I know he didn't mean to. I thought on his record, Donald Trump had a pretty good record, lowest uh, unemployment rate for uh, African Americans since they started keeping track of unemployment rates. Uh, he done a number of things that were good on policy. But his rhetoric, his tone, his uh, when in doubt, slam somebody, uh, that didn't work. So what will he do? He'll run, I think, and he might very well win. He'll win the Republican nomination if he runs. But what should he do? I think he should step aside if he wants to hold a little anointment uh, contest and uh, to see who uh, he tells people, you know, you're hired, you're fired, this is my candidate, whether it be DeSantis or Tom Cotton or Jim Jordan or whomever. Uh, I think the the country of the party, Republican Party, would be better off if he, he simply stepped aside. 
I don't see it happening. I think he's in. That's nationally syndicated radio talk show host, Talkers Heavy 100 member, and inductee in the Radio Hall of Fame, Jim Bohannon. Coming up next, a look into what the heck is happening in the friendly skies. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Hey, fellow radio lover, radio is marking its 100th anniversary this year. Radio, the original social media. Radio, the magic device that brings you talk shows, news, sports, music, weather, and alerts of all kinds. No sign-up fees, no subscription costs. Just press a button. Radio, the elegant device that keeps you company wherever you go and whenever you need it. So when was the last time you heard a commercial on the radio from a company that makes and sells radios? C-Crane specializes in high-quality radios and radios. Radio-oriented audio products, AM, FM, Internet, shortwave, big ones, small ones, high-power ones, battery-operated ones, even ones with cranks when no power is available. See Crane's the place to go for radios of all types. Find a perfect radio for yourself or a super cool gift for that radio lover in your life. Call 800-522-8863. That's 800-522-8863. Or visit them online at ccrane.com. ccrane.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap. The next story involves an issue having to do with the pandemic, the economy, and the national state of mind. Joining us from the nation's capital is our Washington correspondent and the executive director of the D.C. radio company, the one and only Victoria Jones. The airline situation, Southwest a couple of weeks ago, uh, this week it's been American, hundreds of flights canceled, all kinds of inconvenience. It's tough enough flying as it is to suddenly find yourself stranded because of flights being canceled. It's really intriguing because uh, we had American and then a week or so before we had Southwest and uh, American was saying, oh, high winds. And, um, you know, and Southwest was saying, oh, it's weather. And, and then they both staffing shortages. And, and, you know, all the travelers, I'm sure, were going, well, yeah, we know because we can't get any answers and people don't answer the phone. That's that's what it is. So, it, so, so you believe it's the staffing shortages. I, I mean, I see no reason not to believe it either. Obviously, there's a labor problem all across the country. There are lots of uh, uh, reasons for it, everything from COVID regulations to people not wanting to work. But um, what I hear is that um, not only are there staffing shortages, but a byproduct of that is that the people who are working uh, you know, on the airline operations are uh, extended beyond uh, their comfort zone, that that they're exhausted. And frankly, the thought of exhausted airline workers, not just pilots and co-pilots and not just flight attendants, but how about the mechanics and how about the air traffic controllers and how about, you know, all of the other uh, people that make up the um, airline system in America. It's kind of scary to think that they're not on their A-game at all times. Everybody who's involved with with the flight of any airplane is vital. Everybody's vital because it, it, it's lives. You know, we, we sort of take it for granted, but it's lives. It's hundreds of lives in each flight. You're right. This is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial. And they've got to be on their air game and they can't be exhausted. They can't be mentally exhausted. 
exhausted as well as physically exhausted because mentally exhausted could lead to to an error and and when passengers are disgruntled and are behaving like well worse than four-year-olds actually because four-year-olds have tantrums because they don't know better but 20 30 40 50 60 70 year olds have tantrums when they know better it's and and oh and we're about to start increasing our international flights again because international travel's about to ramp up. So how are we going to do that? To what do you attribute this uh, short-tempered um, hostility and just bad behavior that is measurably on the rise uh, in, uh, in airplanes? Well, some of it had to do with with masks, with people who didn't want to wear masks getting into it with flight attendants. But it's not only that, it's, it's other things too. And I think we see it reflected in restaurants. And, and I've been hearing a, a lot of stories from servers, uh, some of whom are quitting because they are saying they've never, ever been insulted by patrons the way they are being now. Uh, the people are behaving so badly and so rudely. And I've been at a bit of a loss. I would have thought people would be so happy to be out and about that they would be behaving well. And yet we're seeing the opposite. It's as though in in a year of lockdown, we lost whatever manners we had. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing people say that they find people driving on the roads are driving with great anger, road rage and, and crazy antics, cutting in and out, you know, tailgating, um, you know, trying, driving haphazardly and uh, other nasty things. So, so this is a society-wide thing. Um, but, but even on the planes, there seems to be a – I haven't flown since the pandemic began. So uh, I, I have not – and I am somebody who flew a lot, but I have not flown since the pandemic. I've gone out of my way to drive even, you know, long interstate missions. Um, uh, I don't know. Is there something about – Airports and uh, and the the nervousness of going through um, the TSA and 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 uh, the, the various and sundry things that one must do um, uh, that makes people on edge and that this little change of environment uh, has shown up in a big time way in terms of yes. air rage. You think that's what it's about in general? Yes. Yes, and I think change of environment is is a big part of it. And drinking increased during the pandemic. So I, I think people are drinking at the airports. And this extraordinary story about, uh, again, it was American, a woman who was a, a barefoot uh, trying to you know board the plane and she was told, well, you know, our policy is you have to wear shoes. And she, she was acting like, Shows? Uh, Why well, don't come on the airport? That was this was what she said. I don't come on the airport very often. Apparently, she left her shoes at the TSA, hmm. and uh, so she tried to climb over the gate. It's a it's irrational behavior. YouTube is full of examples of people um, having meltdowns in stores. And, uh, you know, it started out with that whole thing about Karens, you know, a certain type of woman. Um, they had it down to her hairdo and her looks and everything. Now, a Karen is anybody. There are male Karens, female Karens, a Karen. And I feel sorry for, for innocent women whose name is Karen. But um, a Karen is now anybody who shows a um, uh, a, a, a 
inappropriate level of anger for being told to play by the rules. <laughs> it's like yes, it's yes. and 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 it puts you in an awkward position if actually you would like to complain or make a point or or say anything in in a public situation because you th- you think maybe I shouldn't speak up because someone's going to whip out a phone and I'm going to be a Karen. I hope we get past this. I mean, that's the obvious. Um, I hope it doesn't get worse. Do you think it's going to get worse before it's get, it gets better? Yes, I do, because I don't see any reason why people would change their behavior. Um, I don't see any move for people to to improve their behavior uh nobody's talking about why they're feeling like this. Nobody's, you know, nobody's dealing with their rage. Nobody's looking at it. They're just being angry. And, and, and when that's happening and when it becomes normalized, like the guy who made a horizontal right turn in front of two cars ahead of me to get into a right lane, literally, um, for no reason yesterday, uh, you get away with it. You're just going to keep doing it. I don't see it getting better. That's our Washington correspondent, the executive director of the D.C. radio company, Victoria Jones. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Last week, we played an excerpt from a podcast conversation I recently had with one of the most successful and demonic professional wrestlers of the past quarter century, who's also the mild-mannered mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. In real life, he is Mayor Glenn Jacobs, a conservative politician with libertarian leanings who's taken a national leadership role in his opposition to COVID-19 vaccine and mask mandates. In the annals of the WWE, he's a whole of fame, former three-time heavyweight champion of the world, a seven-foot-tall masked demon from the bowels of hell, Kane. We got so much positive reaction to last week's appearance by Jacobs on the show, we're running another excerpt from it this time around as well. This conversation is on two platforms. It's on our national radio show, on news talk stations, and it's also on our podcast, which is listened to very heavily by people in the broadcasting business. So they're all pretty familiar with what libertarian Uh, what the Libertarian Party and Libertarian thinking is about. And there is a crossover between Republican Party politics and Libertarian Party politics, capital L or small l, being a school of thought. What is the state of the Libertarian movement at this point in time in America? That is a really good question, actually. Um, And you described everything uh, very well that I would have said in response, you know, kind of to the... uh, uh, the question of libertarians and republicans and all that sort of stuff when you look at i believe that uh libertarians and liberty-minded people uh, i believe that that the republican party is a natural home for them uh when we think about ronald reagan and i'm i'm a ronald reagan republican um reagan once said libertarianism is the heart of conservatism and I, we we agree, and I also call myself a uh, a, uh, a conservatarian sometimes mm-hmm. because I, I I'm a mixture of conservative and libertarian thought. In that, uh, my philosophy is libertarian. I believe that uh, as long as people aren't hurting anyone else, they should largely be left alone. Which means that government has to be small, taxes have to be low, uh, regulations have to be uh, as minimal. Uh, as possible, and all those sort of things. Uh, but I'm also conservative, and I believe in the, the values and traditions of America. 
and I believe in the Declaration of Independence. I believe in the Constitution. I also believe in institutions like churches, the family, and all those sort of things. I think that that's really what society is built around. And in order to have a functioning society, we have to have that. If we don't have those things, government is the only institution. So in that respect, I, I'm a conservative. Uh, I think the, um, I think the, the state of liberty in the country, um, it's, it's, un, there's no doubt that currently under the Biden administration with everything that's going on, uh, it is being seriously threatened. Uh, what President Biden is doing, and, and it's not only him, just what the entire federal government is doing at this point, is, is, is a big threat. Um, they're just going out. The, the Constitution's done in their eyes, okay? Um, and that, of course, like many other people, that really bothers me. But what happens in response to that, whenever you start getting big government overreach, people that maybe haven't paid that much attention or haven't thought is important or kind of feel this way, but it hasn't impacted them personally, well, it, that starts happening. And you get this natural pushback. And that's what we're start, starting to see now. Um, I would also argue that it's somewhat regional and somewhat localized. So here in a state like Tennessee, uh, we see what's happening in Florida with Ron DeSantis uh, and some other places. Uh, we're already liberty-minded. Um, so we, we tend to push back a lot harder uh, than other places. And I also think what we're seeing, Michael, is I, I think we are seeing folks, we talked about migration earlier, we're seeing folks, conservatives, in heavily blue areas, and they're moving to the red areas. And likewise, you probably have people that are more liberal moving to the blue areas. So I really think what we're going to see is instead of the country becoming more purple, I think it's going to become even more deeper blue and deeper red depending on where you live. Do you think that's dangerous, or do you think that that uh, will create uh, calm? Uh, that's an well, interesting, uh, it's an interesting well, thing to it, try to predict. It is. I think it, I think it would produce calm if we could all just say, this is the way it is, and we need to learn to live with one another like that. Uh, unfortunately, what tends to happen is the, uh, you know, the, the, the feds come in and say, you're going to do what we say or else, and that's where it becomes problematic. Um, so I think, again, that's, that's the answer to that question is really based on the response and the policies that we see going forward. Uh, if the states are allowed the autonomy that they should have under the Tenth Amendment, I think it's a great thing. Uh, if it's if they're not, I think that uh, the divisions within this country become even worse. Now, many critics of Biden uh, echo what you said that he's engaging in overreach in the large government. The the excessive spending is a form of stifling government control and an anti freedom. Critics of uh, the Republicans uh, are often um, critics of Trump because of Trump's uh, tremendous influence and presence still uh, within the Republican Party, and they say, uh, but this is an authoritarianism type of a uh, an approach, which is equally anti-freedom. How do you deal with that balance? And uh, what do you think about the future of the Republican Party in this era of Trump? Well, I believe that the Biden is actually the authoritarian. And if you look at what Trump did, it wasn't, it actually wasn't authoritarian. I mean, you know, Trump had a very bombastic personality um, and he said a lot of stuff, but in the end, 
if you look at what he did, uh, his policies, I actually agree with most of his policies. On the other hand, uh, Biden, you know, the, the, de- the left and the Democrats always come at things um, with the velvet glove. I'm sorry. They always, well, they come at things with the velvet glove, and they're pretty quick to show that there's actually an iron fist under that. Uh, so I don't buy that. Um, I also think that everyone needs to realize that Trump and the Trump phenomenon was really a reaction to the smug elitism of the left and this idea that anyone that doesn't agree with you is stupid or they're racist, that people are too dumb to live their own lives, and this kind of gleeful celebration of the stupidity of Republican voters. And uh, and we still see it going on today. Um, so I, I think actually it wasn't that hard to predict that Donald Trump was going to rise up because people were people wanted someone that was going to fight, and Trump was the guy that fought. Um, you know, I, I have my own, I have my own personal criticism. I think he fought when he didn't have to, mm-hmm. and uh, he was much more abrasive than anyone ever needed to be. That's Glenn Jacobs, the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee, and former WWE heavyweight champion known as Kane. To listen to the entire conversation with Glenn Jacobs from which that dialogue was excerpted, please visit mhinterview.com. Coming up next, a conversation about racism with Fox Network radio and television talk star Brian Kilmeade. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. Race relations was a big topic this past week in the talk media as the controversy over critical race theory bubbled to the top in the heated discussions about school board politics on what is now being called parental rights in determining what is and what isn't being taught to their kids. Brian Kilmeade is a nationally syndicated host heard daily on Fox News Radio, as well as being one of the hosts on the Fox News Channel's morning show, 
Fox and Friends. As you might know, in addition to being a broadcaster, Brian is a history buff and prolific author with a series of best-selling books about great American leaders such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Sam Houston, and Andrew Jackson to his credit. Now he has a brand new book just out this week titled The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. I recently caught up with Brian to discuss it. Brian, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. What a powerful, powerful combination, an important pivot point in history. So, well, how do I handle the Civil War? Maybe I skip it. I mean, my goodness, it's so well written about. Lincoln's the most written about president, even more than Washington. What could I bring you to it? And then Frederick Douglass gets the book of the year by David Blight was the book of the year. If you read that book, you don't say, well, I could do it better. I mean, it's fantastic. Carl Sandburg does Lincoln. And, well, what if I talked about their relationship and how they pushed each other to be better and how it brings us to this time? And I saw enough quotes to think I could have a book. And then I saw that they met three times and that Douglas constantly uh, was pushing Lincoln and sometimes disappointed and sometimes pleased. It literally kept him in the country. And I also thought self-made men. I think the American people love self-made men. You know, you're born in Virginia, you're Jefferson's kid, you're John Adams' kid. You got an advantage. Everyone, you, it's no nepotism with Lincoln. One to two illiterate parents. His mom dies at nine years old where he worked 20 hours a day as a farmer. His dad would literally license him out. And then you have somebody born a slave. I don't need to tell you how horrific that is. Frederick Douglass writes about it. He wrote his own biography. Mm-hmm. And he kept updating it. Seven years later, he's one of the most, he's a best-selling author. And a sought after speaker around the world, not just in the U.S., and just has they related to each other to make America a better place, and that they all love being American, even Frederick Douglass. Even though he had every reason to hate the country, but he loved the country. He was determined to make it better. And he would be offended if someone said, you know, why don't you just, you know, you got your freedom now. Why don't you just leave to a country that appreciates you? And he's like, no, I've read the Constitution. It's up to us to live up to this great document. It's not up for us to change that document. And I just thought to, to go through two people to a civil war were, were might be effective today. And I'd, sadly, it is, I mean, I wrote next week that builds up Condoleezza Rice's appearance in The View when she came out and said, I was born in segregated South. But you, you don't get anything in life uh, by blaming the white people for what, uh, who had nothing to do with what happened 200 years ago. By, by blaming somebody else, it does nothing but further divide. And today I understand she was she was called a agent an agent for white supremacy, which is comical in its definition. So uh, I just thought that this is something that we could talk about. And also, if you look at this book and you read the book, you see how far we have come, how much closer we are to being perfect, and much better. Uh, we're so much better than we were, and so much closer to to, to perfect that I think people need a sobering deal, and hopefully this delivers that. Well, a lot of people don't realize that, uh, you know, the country never was perfect and never uh, never claimed to be perfect, that uh, the, the, the terminology is in order to create a more perfect union, that the whole idea was that the story arc would be toward perfection, that we would be working toward it, not claiming that we are it. I mean, if you really look at some of the words of the Founding Fathers, it, it, it spells it all out. You know, in order to create a more perfect union, we hold these truths to be self-evident. You could talk about that line for weeks. But you know what I found out interesting um, in, in telling a few people that I was going to be talking to you about this book, because I always consider talking to you to be a special occasion. 
I, I maybe I surround myself by ignorant people, but I was surprised how many people do not know who Frederick Douglass is. And when yeah. I talked about Lincoln and Douglass, everybody said, oh, you mean the guy that he debated, uh, Stephen Douglass? Yeah. And I, I don't know if I'm out to lunch on this, or uh, is Frederick Douglass, in spite of uh, his greatness in terms of his life, his story, and his impact upon American history, um, is he basically under under exposed or, or known by the average Absolutely. person? Absolutely. And by the way, you try to put a title together and you can't put Douglas, Lincoln Douglas. They think Stephen Douglas. Right. That's what and I'm saying. Yeah. Said, yeah. So you have to remember, it's got to be Frederick Douglas. And then we went back and forth. That's why I came up with the president and freedom fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglas, and that battle to save America's soul because you could not use his last name. Born Frederick Bailey, totally underappreciated, not in his lifetime, but in his death, because in comes World War One when he dies just before the turn of the 19th century. And uh, some of the challenges America uh, faced at the time, but this guy was fighting not only for for African American rights, for equality for all, but also for women's rights and the women's right to vote. He was he and Susan B. Anthony worked together on that. And the way I understand it, Douglas kind of disappeared until Philip Foner, F O N E R, uh, brought Douglas back to life in the 1950s because he was so well chronicled and he was the most photographed person of his generation of his time. You, there's so many pictures. He wanted to be photographed. He wanted to be remembered. He knew he stood for something. He knew he could be uh, be a goal for African Americans trying to make their way up in American life, which was clearly divided and racist at the time, like the rest of the world was, by the way. So he was. And then in the 1950s, that began to change to the point where Frederick Douglass is in the history books, not in the way Martin Luther King is in modern day, but now that Frederick Douglass, I think, is very appreciated. Um, but the thing that people have a problem with is that he was a Republican. And so was, and they're like, wow, why would I support a Republican? Well, most African Americans were Republicans back then. Lincoln was the, the first Republican. And that's, you know, he took great pride of being a Republican. So, uh, back then. So he, when people started looking at his life and his writings, they said, man, this guy, this guy's inspirational. Uh, he, he's not going to be stopped, you know? So, I mean, I'll give an example. I, I, it, uh, it kind of builds off what Frederick Douglass said. What, what Condoleezza Rice says is, I would like black kids to be completely empowered to know they are beautiful in their blackness, but in order to do that, I don't need to make white kids feel bad for being white. This is a conversation that I think has gone in the wrong direction. That's pretty much how Frederick Douglass felt. I mean, Frederick Douglass writes that some of his best friends were white as kids, and kids are not born racist. He's convinced of it. He writes about it. He says that, you know... Um, like him and his friend used to talk all the time. It's like, I don't get why you're a slave. What's the difference in color of our skin? That's why this school situation is so important to talk about. Because do you want to go start telling a second and third grader that, that he's an oppressor, that needs to apologize, that he's a born of privilege, or she is born of privilege? I mean, this is the wrong thing to drill into a kid's head, hmm. unless it's intentional. Yeah. So to be in the big picture, Douglas is not appreciated like he should. But for historians, he's, he's definitely coming up every year. And for, for David Blight's book to get the notoriety is, Barack Obama bought the rights to his book. He's going to be bringing that to Netflix. I think that'll begin to change things even more. Yeah. You're referring, of course, to critical race theory when you're talking about children being um, told that they're oppressors. And um, that, that, of course, is one of the major issues going on right now. I mean, we're living at a time where um, the reckoning of the races is major news. We're living in a time where um, the conservative African-American is looked upon as some type of a of a anomaly, which, uh, you know, here in the uh, news talk radio world and news talk television, we have more of an open understanding about that. But um, it is not not that clear. 
that uh, the African-American population in America is not a monolith, <laughs> that there are many different points of view uh, within the African-American oh, yeah. population. And I think that this book shines a light on that. Um, how was the relationship between Abraham Lincoln and uh, Frederick Douglass? Uh, wasn't there friction between them at one point? Uh, oh, yeah. How, how did they resolve it's that? They from one side, though. Uh-huh. I mean, Lincoln never wrote about or talked about that we know of Frederick Douglass, but he all knew of him, had to have, and had to know what people were saying about him. And he wrote that he had this newspaper that he started called The North Star, at which time he would talk about Lincoln. Lincoln would also bring up colonization from time to time, which essentially says, hey, sorry about the slavery thing. We had nothing to do with it. We'd like to send you back home. You know, here's some money. And and people like Frederick Douglass go, really? I'm an American. What do you mean you're going to send me home? Where am I going to go? This is where I was born. You know, fix this. What do you mean we can't live together? And that, that angered Douglas. He would write about that. And when, when Abraham Lincoln brought African-American leaders, not him, into the Oval Office, not the Oval Office, to the White House, and he told New York Times and then the local newspapers to come and watch this, he basically made the proposal to these guys. And when that got out, it was intended to come out uh, during the war. Uh, Frederick Douglass was outraged. Uh, Frederick Douglass was outraged at the first inauguration that, that Lincoln gave was about, hey, South, I know you're left. I need you back. Don't worry about slavery. You can hold on to them. Maybe we'll make the 13th Amendment allowing slavery in our country. You know, Frederick Douglass was outraged. Says, Why did this guy get elected? What were those Douglass debates about? Frederick Stephen Douglass oh. debates about when he talked about the need to get rid of slavery. So he was, uh, you know, he was upset back then. But would, would, to paraphrase, Douglass would go on to understand that he's a politician. And he realized if he did things at the pace that Douglas wanted it done, he'd have no country to be president. How interesting. Because the North was not ready to fight to fight for, uh, for free for African Americans. They were not ready at that point. But once the war started, once it became clear what was right and wrong, uh, then it became clear more and more this man evolved in office. And when they finally met, the goodness and kindness that uh, Abraham Lincoln exhibited uh, went right through to Douglas. He saw it all in him. How and fascinating. maybe his patience uh, was necessary. So, so Frederick Douglass, in many ways, held Lincoln's feet to the fire and helped yes. Lincoln see what he eventually would be looked back in history as standing for. That's fascinating. And so I have some great quotes from, uh, from, from Douglass on Lincoln and Lincoln on, and not as much Lincoln on Douglass, but had they been able to work together, it would have been a, a totally different story. But, but basically, when he dedicated the statue, this freedom statue, which money raised by, by former slaves for Lincoln in his memory, finally done and completed in 1876, it was Frederick Douglass who was asked to give the commemoration. It wasn't the sitting president, Ulysses S. Grant. They just saw these two as inextricably linked, and Grant was not a great speaker. And he said, yeah, let's let Douglass do it. At which time, you know, he, he, gave, he gave some really telling remarks. He didn't say... This guy was perfect. He didn't say America is great. He went in and talked about how special he was, but that he was at a time in, in which, you know, he was not the, the abolitionist that he ended up being. How's hmm. that? 
You know, you, you mentioned Grant, and, uh, you know, uh, we always think about timelines and what would have happened, you know, had somebody not been assassinated or something had not happened. What do you think America would have been like if Lincoln was not assassinated and was able to continue his relationship with Douglas and uh, perhaps the future president, Ulysses S. Grant? There certainly wouldn't have been an Andrew Johnson who was his successor and was certainly uh, quite different. What do you think, you know, have you ever thought about that, what the country might have been like today oh, yeah. if Lincoln had lived? Absolutely. This is what Douglas acknowledged at the end of his speech commemorating the statue. He said, had he, meaning Lincoln, put the tradition of slavery before the salvation of the Union, he would have alienated large numbers of people and rendered resistance of the rebellion impossible. Viewed from the genuine abolition ground, Mr. Lincoln seemed tardy, cold, dull, and indifferent. So that was his view of Lincoln. But measuring him by the sentiment of his country, the sentiment he was bound as a statement to consult, he was swift, zealous, radical, and determined. Hmm. So do you understand the balancing act? He understood why, why Douglas was, to me, he understood why Douglas was critical of him, but he had no choice. It's very interesting when you study history and you see that these figures in history are not cardboard characters, but were very, oh, yeah. very complex, nuanced people, that it takes a tremendous amount of abstract reasoning and intelligence to be able to separate the historical impact of a person from the actual person that they are when you know them too well. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. And I, I find this to be the case all the time. Sometimes we're better off not knowing too much about people. Or, you know, have you ever had the experience of meeting somebody in person that you've admired from afar and wish you never met them in person because it ruins your view of them, even though it doesn't change the impact they had on society for why you like them to begin with? It's it's amazing process. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. I mean, I can think of a number of people, plus you get older and you probably idolize less people when you get older, but to me, it humanizes is the key. That's Fox News Radio and TV talk show host Brian Kilmeade discussing race relations in America. His newest book in a series of history books he's written is titled The President and the Freedom Fighter, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and Their Battle to Save America's Soul. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation. Looking back at the week of Monday, November 1st through Friday, November 5th, 2021. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor, that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I could be reached via email at michaelattalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. I could be reached via email at michaelattalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, please visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Rap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Wrap is a production of Good Phone Communications in conjunction with Talkers Magazine and Talk Media Network. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.